Let's give attention to God's word. Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Amen. We'll end our reading there in verse 26 of Mark chapter 14. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, We pray that you would be pleased to draw near to us now, to speak to us from your word, to show us the Lord Jesus Christ as he meets with his disciples, as he leads them in worship, as he provides for their needs. May we draw comfort that this activity is ongoing, that it includes us, that Christ is with us here today. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be thinking that this sermon is mistimed. It should have come two weeks ago when we were celebrating the Lord's Supper and not today when we're celebrating a baptism. You may also think that it's mistitled. And on both of those, to some extent, I agree with you. I think a better title for the sermon than what's in the bulletin, Christ's Family Devotions, would have been Christ at Worship. But that came to me after the bulletins had already gone out and been printed. So... What were we going to do? What we're really looking at here is just the Lord Jesus at the Passover meal with his disciples, the Passover where he instituted the Lord's Supper. And the reason I originally went with calling it Christ's Family Devotions is that the Passover meal was celebrated in families. And so the head of the household would usually give the words of explanation about the Passover celebration. But of course, the Lord Jesus is doing something new. He's not just observing Passover. He is introducing a new sacrament, a sacrament that takes the place of Passover, yes, but a sacrament that will be handled, that will be administered differently. Now, with Passover, there was very definitely a corporate element. Everybody took their lamb to the temple precincts to be slaughtered. There, But then they ate it broken up separately in their private homes. Now, the Lord's Supper is not handled that way. We don't eat it all separately in our own individual houses. And that becomes very clear when you look at 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11, where Paul deals with the doctrine, the practice, and even the abuses of the Lord's Supper that were coming up in the church in Corinth. So that's why I say a better title would have been Christ at Worship. But we do see him in a small setting. It's Christ and the 12 disciples. Judas leaves at some point during the proceedings, but Mark does not make clear at what point that happened. So we're not going to put a lot of emphasis on that this morning. Now, there's still the other objection that this is not particularly a baptism sermon. Well, wait till the end. We'll see if it all ties together. Hopefully it will. What is going on here? Well, you remember the setting. The Lord Jesus has set aside time to meet with his disciples. We know that there's a lot of different things he's going to do because we have the accounts from the four Gospels. 
We know from John that he's going to wash their feet. We know that he's going to give them extended instruction. We know that he's going to pray out loud an amazing prayer of worship, of intercession, of resignation to his Father's will. We know that there will be a departure to the Garden of Gethsemane, and of course, Mark will tell us about that in more detail later on. But as they observe this Passover, as they have this time together that the Lord Jesus had greatly desired to have, we're told in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus institutes a new ritual. He explains that new ritual, that new supper, in terms of a new covenant. And then he joins the disciples. He leads the disciples in song. Now, The way Mark tells it, of course, there's not very much about Christ preaching or teaching. We can fill that in from the other Gospels, and we can know that actually there was a long and an absolutely mind-blowing sermon from the Gospel of John. But that's not what Mark focuses on. So we want to bear that in mind because, of course, we take for granted that whenever we have the administration of the sacraments, it will be accompanied with the Word of God. The word will be preached and proclaimed. There will be teaching about the nature, the function, the value, and use of the sacraments, as well as their actual administration. Because these are not vain signs. These are not empty rituals. They're meaningful signs. And so they ought to be accompanied by the word so that our minds are prepared for the richness of truth that they communicate. But all of that sort of as an aside, as an introduction. And what you have here is the supper of Christ. As they were eating, Jesus took bread. He blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to them, and he said. So these are the actions. There's a larger supper that is happening around it, the Passover meal. But at some point, Jesus institutes this new Approach. Now, commentators are divided. Some people feel that they can specify exactly when Jesus did the different parts of this. Some will assert very confidently that it was at the third Passover cup, for instance, that the Lord Jesus gave thanks for the cup and gave it to them and said they were all supposed to drink of it. Other people point out that our knowledge of how the Jews observed Passover comes from some time after Christ. That was when the codified structures were written down. And so it may be that they're reflecting what the practice would typically have been, but the Bible doesn't really say that. Whatever else we might want to do with that, however much you might want to explore that just for historical interest, I think we should be very hesitant and very careful about saying, well, Jewish practice as it was written down 70 or 80 or 90 years later can be used to interpret what happened at the institution of the Lord's Supper. If we knew for sure that that was how it happened at that time, maybe that would give us a little bit more confidence. But with those uncertainties that it was written down later and was that how it was practiced there at the time, I don't think we should rely on that for interpretation. So any interpretation of these words that's based on reconstructing Jewish practice from several decades later and retrojecting it, projecting it backwards for the kids who don't know what retrojecting means, projecting it backwards onto the time of Christ 
We want to be careful about interpretations along those lines. So understanding that, bearing that in mind, what do we learn from what is here? Well, as is often the case, a lot of the payoff is in the verbs. Jesus is engaging in several actions. There's bread on the table. Jesus takes it. He blesses it. Now, there were ritual benedictions that the Jews would typically pronounce on this occasion. We don't know if Jesus used that form of words or if he used his own form of words. If that were important, Mark could have written that down, but he didn't. He just said that he blessed it. So he pronounced some sort of blessing over the meal. And the idea of blessing, the idea of giving thanks are very similar. When we say, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our creator, who bringest forth the fruit of the ground, which is one of the characteristic Jewish blessings there. Well, that's a way of giving thanks, isn't it? You didn't actually say thank you, but it tends in the same direction. So he blessed it, and then he broke it, and he gave it to them. And then he said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, we're so familiar with these words or words like them from observing the Lord's Supper, that we sometimes need to slow down and really take it in again. How do you break it down? Well, he took bread. That's action number one. He takes up bread in his hands. And it may seem like making a mountain out of a molehill to talk about that. That goes without saying. What's the big deal? Well, but remember whose hands these are. This is the creator. This is the one who has made everything. This is the one who's upholding the universe by the word of his power. And he takes bread in his hands. It shouldn't be passed over. He is sharing their life. He is in the same situation they're in. He is with them. He is experiencing their limitations. He's one of them. At the same time that he is the creator, he takes bread. He doesn't snap his fingers and create a loaf out of nothing. He takes bread that was originally wheat growing in the ground, that was then harvested, that was then ground into flour, that was then baked into a round, unleavened loaf of bread. Unleavened just because of the time of year that this was when leaven would not have been found in any dwellings in Jerusalem, at least not in any obedient dwellings in Jerusalem. So he takes up this round, unleavened piece of bread and he breaks it for distribution to everybody. He gives it to them. Christ is the one communicating this meal to them. Now, in a sense, that's always true, isn't it? Every time you eat, and this is why we cultivate the practice of giving thanks for our food before we dive in. It's not that the food is more likely to make us sick if we don't pray over it. It's not some sort of superstitious ritual like that. It's an acknowledgement. Every meal comes from God. He opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. If we have bread, if we have mashed potatoes or whatever it is that we have today, we have it because God gave it to us. That's why it's good to give thanks before meals, just so we never lose sight of that. But this was especially emphatic. So on the one hand, it shows us how we should approach all of our food. It's all a gift from God. It's all a reason for gratitude. But then Jesus added something. 
You could say of every meal we have that he's taken bread, he's blessed it, he's given it to us. But not of every meal does he say, this is my body. Okay, now this one stands out. This is the meal by way of excellence. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, not just providing for us, taking care of us in terms of our physical needs. This is the Lord Jesus doing something much greater, doing something that goes beyond, that transcends what he does every day when we sit down to our breakfast. Now, I want you to think about the setting here a little bit. Obviously, these words, this is my body, have been a source of considerable contention. It was a source of contention between the Roman Catholics and the Protestants at the time of the Reformation. It was a source of contention between Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli in their Marburg Colloquy, where Luther famously banged on the table and just repeated, this is my body, as though that settled everything. What did Jesus mean? Well, I would like to rule out one thing right from the get-go because of the situation. Jesus did not mean this bread has magically converted itself into an actual chunk of my flesh. Why did he not mean that? Because they were looking at Jesus and they could see that his whole body was complete and integral, that he had not snapped off a piece of his arm or his side. In the situation where these words were pronounced, that particular misunderstanding would have been impossible. So the disciples would have known, this is my body, means this represents, this symbolizes, this signifies my body broken for you and communicated to you, genuinely broken. They might not have grasped that then, but the commentary on that was coming up pretty quickly. Genuinely communicated to you. That's what is in view here. This is not an invitation to cannibalism. This is an invitation to union and communion with Christ. And he tells them to take and to eat. They are to be participants of Christ. They are to have his life flowing in them. These were disciples who would remember that he had said that he would give his flesh for the life of the world. Christ's supper is not magic. It is so much better than that. It is a sign and a seal of genuine union to Christ that results in an ongoing life, that results in Christ being in us, the hope of glory. That means that his joy is our joy. His peace is our peace. His life is communicated to us. We fight against sin and the devil in this life, not left to our own devices, but because of the life, because of the power of Christ made manifest in us, communicated to us. You see, even though he is about to be arrested, even though he is about to be condemned and crucified, even though the disciples are going to have to see him buried, he's letting them know they're not alone. They're not comfortless. The trials that are coming upon them, even though they're his trials more than they belong to the disciples, even though he's going to bear the brunt of it, 
yet he's still there to help them, to nourish them, to sustain them, to communicate his life to them, even as his life is being taken away from him. We need to put the Lord's Supper in the context of that night so that we really catch a glimpse. I'm not saying we're getting to the bottom of it, but so that we at least catch a glimpse of what a wealth, what a richness of meaning is genuinely here. Take, eat, this is my body. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. These disciples did not earn that place. They had no ability to demand a piece of the body of Christ, but Christ gave it to them in grace. Nobody else could have given it. Nobody else could have taken bread and said, here's the body of Christ, you have it. But Christ could do that. Christ could give himself. Christ could share himself. Similar when he took the cup and gave thanks, they all drank from it. And then he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. And now you see that meal assuming its proper place. The riches of it, the depth of it in conveying Christ have been set out a little bit by the words. But when he uses that key word covenant, now the pieces really begin to fall into place. This is the only time in the Gospel of Mark that the word covenant is used. Now, that's not because Mark does not believe in God's covenant. That's not because Mark is not a covenant theologian. But there's more than one way to emphasize things. You can emphasize things by repetition, and Mark does that on occasion with certain concepts. But you can also have something, emphasize something by having it at a critical juncture and using the keyword once, because then it jumps out at you. It doesn't get lost in the crowd. This is the only place where the covenant is appealed to explicitly in the Gospel of Mark. And how does it come up? It comes up in explanation of the pouring out of the blood of Christ. He says about the cup, this is my blood which is shed for many. Well, the commentary on that is also coming. They are going to see him bleeding as he's beaten with the whip, as the crown of thorns is pressed on his head, as he carries his, the crossbeam of his cross out to the place of execution, as he's nailed upon it. They're going to see blood. They're going to see his blood being shed. And if they remember these words, They'll have the explanation. Why is this happening? It is happening because of the covenant. It is happening because God has made covenant promises to redeem his people through the death of a substitute, through the death of the ultimate, the real Passover lamb. If the conveying, if the giving of the bread and wine showed them that Christ was really theirs, that Christ was with them, that they were joined to him and he was living within them. This phrase explains that all of this is happening in fulfillment of God's purposes, in keeping God's promises, in carrying out the great plan of salvation so that now they know that in the death of Christ, their salvation is Accomplished, it's realized. 
And Christ gives them hope when he says to this, Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of that vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He gives them something to look forward to, something that we can also look forward to every time we come to the Lord's Supper. There is a day coming when our communion with Christ will not be occasional, when it will not be sporadic, when it will not be a special moment in our lives. I mean, thank God for those special moments. But there comes a day when those special moments swallow up all the humdrum, all the ordinary, all the hard, all the difficult, all the backbreaking, overwhelming days in between. Christ will drink this cup with us new in the kingdom of God. There is a marriage supper of the Lamb to which we are invited. When we partake by faith of Christ here, That's the promise. That's the guarantee. That's the expectation of what we can hope for, what we can still come to. Now, the Lord Jesus made these great truths known to his disciples in this special moment of worship. Shouldn't that underscore the reality, the importance of worship in our lives? How do we expect to know these things? How do we expect to keep these things vividly before us? If we're not regular, faithful, reliable in attending public worship. If we're not gathering with God's people as the disciples were together when Christ gave them this wonderful blessing. What do we expect to happen to our spiritual lives? Anemia, spiritual anemia is the least of it. Of course, that almost goes without saying. But what else? might come along with that spiritual anemia? What darkness, what forgetfulness that we've been purged from our old sins, what falling back into the bondage of sin because we think those chains have been reforged, because we lost sight of the reality that they were broken. When did the disciples hear these wonderful words? When they gathered for worship. When do we partake of the sacraments, whether baptism or the Lord's Supper? When we gather for worship? When do we expect then to receive strength and grace and comfort for our day-to-day lives? When we gather for worship? Christ is with us, and praise God, he is not only with us in the worship services. If that were true, of course, we'd be afraid to leave. But Christ goes with us. He's with us everywhere. But here, when we gather, when we come with hearts that are eager to hear the word of God, he meets with us in a special way. He strengthens us as we genuinely need. Well, then you notice this addition here. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, if they were following the Jewish practice that was subsequently written down, Psalms 113 and 114 would have been sung before the meal. And then at the conclusion of the meal, they would have sung Psalms 115 through 118. So it's very possible that when it says they sung a hymn, it means that they sung Psalms 115 through 118 or at least some portion of it. But again, Mark doesn't choose to tell us. So that's not the part on which we can lay tremendous stress or find the most significance. What we find instead here is the reality 
of a singing Savior. Now, we don't often think about that. We hear about the Lord Jesus praying. We hear about the Lord Jesus preaching and teaching. We hear about him performing miracles. And, of course, we do find him instituting the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So we might think about the Lord Jesus' activity in those connections. But we don't often think of him as a singing Savior. And yet this is part and parcel of our worship, and it's part and parcel of the approach of a Reformed church to the worship service, and that is that our worship leader is the Lord Jesus. You have that, of course, in Hebrews chapter 2, appealing back to Psalm 40, where Psalm 40 is applied to Christ. And in Psalm 40, it says, In the midst of my brethren, I will sing praise to God. Christ is the worship leader. Now, that has several applications. One application, of course, is that, well, then what we do in worship needs to be something Christ leads us in. We can't come to worship where Christ is the leader and do things that he would disapprove, that he would abominate, that he would abhor, that he would never condone. That's incoherent. That's basically firing Christ as our worship leader and putting somebody else in instead. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want to do that. I would like to keep Christ as our worship leader. But it also has an application. It means that when we come to worship, we are joining Christ in an activity that he delights to engage in. We're not worshiping alone. We're worshiping under the guidance of Christ. We're worshiping with Christ as our leader. And of course, then that has an application. How should we be in worship? Should we sit and get distracted? Should we allow our minds to wander? Should we be focused on anything and everything other than the worship? You know, I'm pretty sure that if Christ were standing here physically and in person, we would all pay attention. And I think if Christ were leading us in song, we'd be eager to join in, even if we didn't feel like we had the best voices. But Christ is our worship leader. So join in, participate, be active in worship to the best of your ability. Because who is leading the worship? It's not me. It's really Christ. When they had sung a hymn, he led them out to the Mount of Olives. And that means that Christ is with us in our singing. We're not left alone in this ministry, but Christ is with us there too. What a comfort to know then that Christ is present in the preaching of his word. It's an exercise of his prophetic ministry. What a comfort to know that Christ is present in the prayers. It's in his name that we are heard. What a comfort to know that Christ is present in our songs as he leads us in this ministry. Also, an application of the prophetic ministry. You remember David the prophet is also the great psalmist, right? Those two ideas are linked. And what a comfort that Christ is with us in the sacraments, that it's his body communicated to us, his blood that we share his blood that was shed for many. And when we come to baptism as well, I pour a little bit of water. I say some words we're all familiar with. But it is Christ who acknowledges, who recognizes, who marks this child as belonging 
to the covenant and people of God. Amen.